On a Saturday evening in 1899 in Denver, Colorado, four newspaper reporters got together on a, a, at a, a train depot looking for a story for the next morning. They had nothing. It was a boring week in Denver, apparently. And so they were waiting at the train station in hopes that a celebrity or someone would show up that they could then write about and put in the next day's paper. They had deadlines. But no celebrity came, and so they had no story. As they were leaving, Al Stevens, one of the reporters, made a joke about how he was just going to go back to his desk and make up a story. Everyone kind of laughed it off, and they said, ah, why don't we go over to the hotel, Oxford Hotel, ballroom and grab a, a round of drinks. So they went to the ballroom and then Jack Turney, one of the other reporters, told Al, you know what, I kind of like your idea about faking a story. Who knows how many drinks were had at this point. But they started to come up with a plan. They said, okay, let's, let's do this. Instead of faking different stories, why don't we come up with one big hoax? And instead of coming up with something local, that people could you know, probably figure out, why don't we come together and make up a, a story about something happening on the other side of the world? So one of the reporters, John Lewis, came up with the following story, quote, group of American engineers stopping in Denver en route to China. The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall. Our engineers are bidding on the job. That was their story. They were going to convince people, they thought, or maybe not, doesn't matter, just need a story, that China was taking down the Great Wall as a symbol of goodwill and welcoming in foreign trade. So they even went as far as going to another hotel, the Windsor Hotel, and registering fake names of fake New York engineers in case anyone wanted to find out if the story was true. So the next morning, the Post, the Times, the Republican, and the Rocky Mountain News all ran this concocted story on the front pages. The Times headline read, Great Chinese Wall Doomed. Job was done. Got a story this week, now on to next week. No harm, no foul, right? The problem was, the story was taken seriously. It was believed and expanded by other newspapers all the way to the East Coast and eventually got to other countries and made it all the way around the world to guess where? China. And China heard news that America was sending over a group of people to destroy their beloved national monument. And they were upset. In fact, they were so upset that one group, a sort of secret society within China, who was already enraged by foreign indignation, began attacking foreign embassies in Peking. They, they ended up slaughtering hundreds of missionaries from foreign countries. Within two months, 12,000 foreign troops from six different countries entered into China in attempts to stop the violence. You may remember studying this in high school or college history. It's known as the Great Boxer Rebellion. And all of it was started by four guys doing something seemingly harmless in Denver, Colorado, in a hotel bar on a Saturday night. Something as seemingly small as words on a page in Denver can spark violence and bloodshed on the other side of the world. Or as James put it, as we just heard, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
In our passage this morning, James is showing us the power and influence that our words have on our lives and on the the world around us. As one philosopher famously said, you could probably finish this for me, with great power comes what? Great responsibility. The same is true with our words. How are we to understand the power and influence that our words have? How How can we responsibly use our words not to cause harm, Not to curse, but to bless. And these are some of the questions that James answers for us. And really what this passage does is confronts us with one primary question that we want to break down. Will the power of our words be shaped by the poison of sin or by the promise of the gospel? That's the question we want to answer for ourselves and James answers for us. And so we'll tackle this passage in those three parts. First, the power of our words in verses 1 through 5. Then the poison from our words in verses 5 through 10. And then the promise for our words in verses 10 through 12. So let's jump right in. First, we see in this passage the power of our words. James begins, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, this passage isn't all about teachers, but James starts by addressing a very specific problem that his readers in the church were experiencing. Apparently, there were some in the church who saw this position of a public Bible teacher, and they aspired to it, but they didn't aspire to it necessarily because they had a deep call from God and a desire to teach God's Word. They they aspired to it because they saw the influence And we're motivated by some selfish ambition. A teacher has a public chance to gain people's undivided attention. Maybe. You look like your attention is undivided right now, but you could be thinking about something else, right? But this is a monologue. You don't talk back to me. Even if I ask sometimes, right, in this setting. It's weird. So there's a, a position of influence. It's appealing to people. Their their words can inspire others. And so there were some in the church saying, I want that. So James, he isn't discouraging people who are called to teach from pursuing teaching God's word. Don't mishear him here. Nor is he saying that this this position of Bible teacher is only for this elite group of, of people. Right? That's not what he's saying. What he is doing is he's saying, hey, those of you who are aspiring to this because you think you're going to have position and influence, let me just warn you, words have power. And teachers use more words than most other people to influence others. Therefore, if you are a teacher, you will be held accountable for the way you speak in a very special way. They will be, quote, judged with greater strictness, James says. Now, a side note here, this isn't, uh, this isn't referring to the judgment of salvation. James isn't saying that teachers um, are, are saved by how well they teach or, or the words that they speak. Okay? No, no one who trusts in Christ, teachers or, or anybody else, are, are judged because of their performance or the words they speak. Because Christ has taken our judgment already on the cross. But Scripture is clear that we will stand before God And we will, even though covered by the blood of Jesus, we will give an account for how we live. This is what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the, the judgment that James has in view. 
One commentator sums it up this way. He says, teachers are more susceptible to judgment than others because they regularly engage in that activity which is hardest to keep from sin, speech. So we can say about this, you can flip this on the positive and say, okay, then what must teachers be? And this is helpful for you. Whether or not you're aspiring to a teacher, this is what God desires. If you were just to sum it up in two things. That means teachers must teach God's truth. Not their own words. Anybody who stands up here, whether it's me or whether it's Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Clint or anywhere else where you're hearing someone teach God's word, it's, their eloquence doesn't really matter. Their opinion, our opinion, doesn't really matter. What matters most is that we take our God-given responsibility to give God's people God's word. Not our words. And if we stray from that... We're going to be judged and held accountable for it. But also, teachers must not just teach God's truth, they must live God's truth as well, right? Isn't it interesting to think about the the fact that Jesus' greatest enemies on earth were Bible teachers? Pharisees who taught God's truth with their mouths but completely ignored it in the way they lived. As Pastor Clint said last week, they had saying faith. They said the right things. But then their mistreatment of others and their blatant rejection of Jesus showed that they didn't have saving faith. So James is saying, listen, this position that you're aspiring to, just know this, very serious. And God will hold teachers to account in a special way. But this passage isn't all about teachers. And really, it's just that one verse to to kind of kick off this discussion about speech. And so James goes on to say, look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The word stumble here is a metaphor for sinning. James levels the playing field for us here. So he's not just talking about teachers. By the way, he includes himself. Hey, we all stumble in the way we speak. All of us sin in our speech. This is one of those parts of the Bible that even for those who are opposed to Christianity or opposed to the Bible, if you were just to say, hey, listen, we all say dumb stuff, we're like, yeah, we can't really argue with that. No one's disagreeing with this truth. We've all said stupid things. We've all said hurtful things to others. We've all been recipients of the damage of harsh and sinful words, haven't we? James then shows the power of words by saying, listen, if you can bridle your speech or you can steer steer and control your speech, you're able to control your whole body, the course of your life. In fact, you show yourself to be perfect if you can control your speech. And what James is hinting at there is that's something that is unattainable this side of heaven. None of us are perfect in the way we speak. James goes on to illustrate this. He's being a good pastor here, giving some good practical examples. In verse 3, he says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. On average, a horse weighs, I'm not a horse guy, but on average, uh, they weigh about 1,000 pounds. But if you put this little five-inch piece of metal in their mouth and strap it to a few pieces of leather, which is the bridle, you can steer that 1,000-pound beast any way you please. Verse 4, Look at the ships also. They're so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot directs. So we may say, consider the car you drove here this morning in. 
On average, a car weighs about 4,000 pounds. But you can steer it with that 14-inch wheel right in front of you. goes up to over 100 miles per hour. Some of your cars probably don't go that fast anymore. But with that small wheel that we never think about, we can steer it any way we please. Something comparatively small controls something large and powerful. And he summarizes his point in verse 5. So also the tongue, which is our words, is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So in using these illustrations, notice, notice what James is doing. He's mentioning things that were commonly known but rarely considered, right? Captains don't spend all their time thinking about the ship rudder. They just steer. The rider doesn't spend time meditating on the purpose and function of a bit in the horse's mouth. Any more than you and I you know, think deeply about our steering wheels when we get in our cars. But think about it. How many major life decisions have you gone through that have been influenced by the power of words of others? Maybe a career path that you chose because someone encouraged you? Or a book you read, words on a page, that changed the way you think? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's because at some time or another, someone spoke to you the truth of the gospel, or you read the truth of the gospel, and it changed not just the direction of your life here, but of eternity for you. It's the influence and power of words. God himself, how did he create? He spoke creation into existence. He called people out with words. He wrote a book for us. So James wants us to pause and reflect on the commonly known but rarely considered power of our words. That's what these illustrations point us to. It's as if he's asking, and we ask yourself this question now, do you ever stop and think about the influence and responsibility that you have with your speech? But we don't only see the power of words here. James goes on to warn us of the poison from our words. Verses 5. Look at the, the second half of verse 5 there. James is expounding upon the reality that we all stumble in our speech. He's already said that, but he's about to go deeper. He's about to give some real heavy language to show this. And he starts by describing the negative influence that our words can have. And he gives another illustration in the second part of verse 5. But instead of emphasizing power, right, the ship, the horse emphasized power. Now he's emphasizing the devastation. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I'm originally from California, and it seems like every time you turn on the TV, the whole state is on fire, right? Does it not? And I don't mean like metaphorically. I mean literally, you know, not politically or anything like that, maybe, but like actual forest fires. You know how most forest fires start? Somebody didn't put out their campfire properly. They left, seemed like there was no smoke, seemed like the fire was done, but there were a few embers hiding underneath. The weather's dry, the wind begins to blow, the embers spark, they blow into a piece of dry grass, and this teeny little, almost unnoticeable spark then creates a fire that is nearly unstoppable, destroying towns, mountainsides. That's what sinful speech does, James says. You don't even notice it. 
Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. He's saying sinful speech affects every area of life. It's a world of unrighteousness. That's a unique phrase. What does James mean here? What he's saying is that our speech can encapsulate every sin and evil that we can think of. Every sin that can be committed with our hands can also be commended with our mouths. So the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Just to give you an example, Jesus does this in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He shows how the tongue can be a world of unrighteousness. He says, you've heard it said to those of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying, listen, you may not have murderous hands, but sinful words can betray a murderous heart, right? They can show a murderous heart. You may not steal with your hands, but your words can reveal a heart of greed and envy. Words are a world of unrighteousness. It stains everything. It destroys the course of life. And James goes as far as to say that the origin of such sinful speech is hell itself. Verse 6. This is a hard-hitting part of this passage. It's time and time again. He goes on. It's a restless evil, verses 7 and 8. It's a deadly poison. And, And though mankind has been able to tame all sorts of wild animals... You've seen this if you've ever been to a place like SeaWorld or, or the zoo, right? Man can tame wild animals, but they can't even tame their own words. Now, James' writing here is very proverbial, but he actually doesn't give us a lot of clear examples of how this works out in our speech. What might this look like? Now, Proverbs is full of wisdom and examples of how we sin in our speech. Just, just want to look at a few of them. These might be helpful for you to write these references down and reflect on later. Proverbs 10.19 shows us that sometimes we just talk too much. We may not even be saying evil things, but sometimes we sin because we just can't keep our mouths closed. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Meaning, listen, we're sinners. If all we do is talk, 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 and talk, We're going to be prone to to keep others from talking, and eventually that sin's going to come out. So watch your words. Lying, Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Arrogant boasting, Proverbs 27, 2. This is an important one for us. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Translation, don't talk about how awesome you are because you're not that awesome. A stranger and not your own lips. And then Proverbs is full of warnings against gossip and slander, like Proverbs 10, 18. One who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Speaking about people behind their back, things that you would never say to their face. Oftentimes, we cloak this in things like, I'm praying for them or I'm concerned for them. But it's gossip. Flattery, Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. 
And notice also what this proverb shows us. We can actually sin by what we don't say. Meaning there are times when if we are speaking the truth in love to one another, and if we truly love someone, we might need to be, say something hard and difficult. We might need to gently and lovingly rebuke them. But because of our selfish desire, we actually keep those words inside. One of the greatest modern examples of poisonous words that I think we can see in our culture is the ongoing shaming that happens on social media. Just by a show of hands, how many of you are on social media? Awesome, a lot of you. How many of you don't know what social media is? I'm just kidding, you don't have to answer that. Right? I'll give you an example. Thanks, Dad. Um, in 2015, Justine Sacco posted an inappropriate joke on Twitter. To, uh, she had 170 Twitter followers. Very inappropriate joke. She shouldn't have posted it. She posted it, got on a flight, turned her phone off, 11-hour flight from London to South Africa. And while she was on the plane, sleeping, her, her post went viral, and tens of thousands of people began to publicly shame her. Before she got off the plane, she lost her job as a communications director, which, by the way, as a communications director, you should know to be careful with social media. That's a side note. But people who didn't know her at all were saying horrific things about her. I would never repeat those in anyone's company. Her life, as she knew it, was ruined. She was made a spectacle. She's since struggled with deep depression, post-traumatic stress from the incident, sleepless nights from this. And do you see the irony of that story? Someone says something insensitive and inappropriate, and how does the world respond? By saying things far more insensitive and far more inappropriate, right? James is saying that's the hellish cycle of sinful speech. Do you remember that ridiculous poem when you were a kid? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, that is, that's not true, by the way. If someone comes up and just breaks my kneecaps, I can go get surgery, I can get a cast, right? It may hurt. But according to Proverbs 12, 18, harsh words are like sword thrusts into us. They, leave, they cut deep and they leave lasting scars. So James explains how this was happening in the church. Look at verse 9 into verse 10. He says, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. James returns to this theme we've already seen, haven't we, in time and time again in, in this book. A divided soul, an inconsistent life. We've seen already, if you say you love God, but you demonstrate prejudice toward others, you're living an inconsistent life. Your faith is not being put into action. If you say you have faith, but your faith isn't demonstrated by your works, then your faith isn't real. And if you bless God with your words one moment, but then in turn curse those made in His image in the next, you're being inconsistent. Your faith is not being put into actions or put into speech. And the word blessing here has the idea of corporate worship in mind. James is saying this is happening in the gathering of God's people. It would be similar to what we're doing this morning. We come here, and what do we do? We bless God. We read a psalm. We sing to Him. 
We sing, you alone are holy, matchless in your glory. There's no one like you, God. And then we get in the car and on Main Street someone cuts us off. And under our breath, we... Right? Or as we're speaking to a friend later, we get annoyed and we snap at them. Or we're harsh in our words, with our, overly harsh with our children as we're disciplining them or with our spouse as we're having a conversation. We praise God and then we degrade those made in the image of God with the same mouth. And we can all look at this and easily nod in agreement and say, yep, we've seen that. We've seen it around us. But remember, James has told us in chapter 1 that the word of God is meant to be like a mirror for us. So he doesn't want us just to nod our head in agreement about how we see this around us. He wants us to ask ourselves as we look into the mirror, how have we had poisonous words? How have you spoken in ways that have degraded others, that have sinned against God? Or the flip side of it, in what ways have others' poisonous words been hurtful to you? What wounds do you have maybe that you've been ignoring because of harsh words in the past. Now, admittedly, as I was studying this week, I'm like, James, come on, man. This is heavy. It feels like James is laying a burden on us that we can't bear. He's saying, listen, your words are powerful, they're poisonous, and you can't do anything about it. Thanks a lot, James. I appreciate that. But, but... We're not left without hope here. We're not left without an implied promise for our words. And that leads us to number three, the promise for our words. Look at the second half of verse 10. James looks at all of this and he says, with loving concern, by the way, the loving concern of a pastor. He says, brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. This isn't the way it should be. And just as a side note, this is the right Christian response as we see the havoc of sin in our world, whether it's speech or anything else. The right response isn't, you know what, you're right, but it's just part of life. All of us struggle with our speech. No, the right response is to look at this and say, this is not the way God intended it. And to illustrate this further, James makes this point with some intentionally absurd questions in verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. No, it doesn't. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What James is saying here is, hey, listen, nature is not a hypocrite, is it? Nature is consistent. A freshwater river doesn't suddenly switch to salt water and back. Fig trees give you figs. Apple trees produce apples. And so on. He's saying the same should be true with us, but it's not. This should not be so. So how do we avoid such inconsistency in our speech? Is James dooming us to failure? After all, he has said, you're not perfect. Your words are untamable. So what is James trying to do to us? And this is where we get some help from a 4th century pastor named Augustine. He's from Africa. And here's what he says as he's reflecting back on verse 8. Listen to this. This is on the screen. James does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of men. So that when it is tamed, we confess that it is brought about by the pity, the help, the grace of God. 
What's the only hope? James wants, wants us to see this. That our only hope for the powerful and poisonous words that we have is gospel grace. The answer isn't, hey, try harder to speak better. That would be like stapling figs to a grapevine and saying, hey, look at my fig tree. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just as a horse is directed by a rider and just as a ship is steered by a captain, just as a stream of fresh water has a source, just as a tree grows from its roots, so our words flow from our hearts. So if we want renewed words, what do we need? We need renewed hearts. That's what James is pointing us to. And this is exactly what God promises for us in the gospel. Let's take a step back from James for a second and look back at the promise of the gospel in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. What does God say? I'll sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's that promise saying? I will give you a new heart so that you can speak and live for me. That's what Christ does for us in the gospel. He gives us a new and holy heart, which means new and holy words. Yes, we work to train our speech, but... We don't work from our own strength any more than a rudder steers itself or a river produces its own water. We look to Christ who never spoke a sinful word, who always spoke the words of his Father, who paid the price for every sinful word we've ever spoken, taking it to the cross, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven and fulfilling that promise of Ezekiel 36 so that all who believe in him receive his spirit, receive this new heart from which new words can flow. That's the promise of the gospel. And for those of us who are still so deeply affected by the cutting words of others, know this, Christ's words to those who come to him are always gentle and humble. He'll never snap at you in anger, He'll never speak sinfully to you. He'll never, he'll, he'll never cut you with his words. He'll lovingly discipline you, yes, but he loves you. And so, friend, let me just say, if you have not believed that gospel this morning, can I encourage you, please do so now. And if you have any questions about what that means to receive a new heart, to receive the Holy Spirit, to trust in Jesus, ask one of us, ask someone next to you. But please don't mishear James. Don't walk out of here saying, I need to talk better. That's true, but you need the power to do so, which comes through Christ. So what do these kind of words look like? Though James', James passage here is very, uh, seems heavy-handed, what we can do is we can flip these negative examples and see exactly what our speech should look like. Look at verses 6 through 8. And let's consider the opposite of those negative examples. A heart that's renewed by the gospel gives words of refreshing water, not unrighteous fire. They direct the course of life toward godliness, not toward destruction. They bring about heavenly life, not hellish evil. 
They purify relationships. They build up one another. They don't stain and tear down. They bring about peaceful and consistent goodness, not restless and inconsistent evil. And my favorite, they are like healing medicine for the hurting, not like deadly poison. Don't we want that kind of speech? I do. I pray that for us. I've received it from so many of you. It's so encouraging as a church with one another and our families. As we engage in conversation with this lost world around us, don't we want this kind of speech? Then we must first believe the gospel. That's the source. But... We must also, by God's grace, train ourselves to speak godly words. And the best way to do this is to receive God's word. As I mentioned before, I'm from California, but I spent so much time in Atlanta, I picked up a southern twang. Okay? Some of you have pointed out before, trying to, trying to work on it. But that's what happens. People are like, you're from California? Say, yeah. But when you immerse yourself in a culture... You start to change, and your accent starts to change over time in a way that you don't even notice. That's what we need with God's Word. We need Bible immersion so that we speak with the accent of God's Word. Listen to this very practical counsel as we close it up here that Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, gives. The words are on the screen. He says, we need to see... That we live every, by every word that comes from God's mouth. God's word sanctifies us. It means it makes us holy. The more I awake in the morning and feed myself with the scriptures, and the more I'm saturated with the word under a biblical ministry, the more the word of Christ will do the sanctifying work in me and on me. And consequently, the more Christ will train my tongue as his word molds and shapes me. Yes, there needs to be rigorous activity, but it is in order to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It is a receptive activity. Amen. Our words will always have power and influence. What we say will always matter, but the question for us is, will our words be shaped by the poison of hell and sin, or will our words pour forth from a renewed heart shaped by the promise of the gospel. So may we, completely relying on God's grace, speak the words that we've received, words of life. 